what we've got uh, in amongst us now of significant minorities who are fundamentally anti-British, who hold a country which has given them succor, which has given them a roof over their head, which has fed them, given them opportunities, holds our, holds our country in contempt, and that has to stop. Coming up on British thought leaders Ben Habib, Deputy Leader of Reform UK. Ben talks about the failure of multiculturalism. Fundamentally, if immigration is to work, we have to assimilate immigrants. They have to join our culture and we have to take from them the best of their culture and they take from us the best of our culture. So we emerge as a stronger, homogeneous society. He says British values and Western democracies are under attack. So if you're a seven-year-old white child of a middle-class, working middle-class family, you're basically told you're racist, you're privileged, your existence threatened the, threatens the planet, you can be whatever gender you want. Can you imagine being this child? You would grow up completely lacking in confidence, discombobulated. You wouldn't have the aspiration that is key to the human spirit. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Ben Habib, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. It's a pleasure, thank you for having me. You said you'd do your best to obliterate the Conservative Party. Why does the party need to be obliterated and what are its biggest failings? Yeah, so let me just clarify. It's the Conservative Parliamentary Party that I wish to really do damage to. And I wish to do damage to it because it's not Conservative. Um, you know, in the pursuit of winning elections, they've tried to be all things to all people, progressively moving further and further, as I see it, to the left to try and occupy ground that Labour used to occupy. Um, you know, they've got the odd centre-right politician who believes, believes in low, low taxes and deregulation, but they're in a minority. The vast majority of the parliamentary party, as distinct from the membership, the parliamentary party have moved over to that kind of lefty, pro-EU, um, unfussed about an independent, sovereign United Kingdom, very happy to be a highly regulated society, completely bought into the inexorable drive to net zero, which is doing so much damage to our economy, um, and really unthinking um, march towards the economic destruction, cultural destruction of the United Kingdom. And I know that sounds almost um, hyperbolic, but I think that is what we're facing. And um, so the parliamentary party needs to be destroyed because as it's functioning at the moment, it's not doing any service to this country at all. I mean, I'm not saying every single MP in the Conservative Party needs to be ousted from their seats. There are some very good ones, and you and I were talking about Suella Braverman just before we started this interview. But with the exception of a handful, Priti Patel and others, Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, with an exception of a handful of MPs, really the party is no longer conservative, and it's certainly not unionist. You know, as you might know, I've been fighting the cause for Northern Ireland, trying to get rid of that Irish Sea border and get Northern Ireland back into the United Kingdom, which it isn't at the moment. And, um, you know, what could be the greatest betrayal? What could be a greater betrayal of your country than to give up part of it to a foreign jurisdiction, to, you know, laws made by a foreign legislature 
um, and adjudicated by a foreign court. I mean, that is the subjugation of Northern Ireland, and that was done by the Conservative and Unionist Party. So the parliamentarians really need to be taken to task. You say that's the biggest failing of the, of the Tory party. I, I, think, I, I think it is. You know, you can, th there's a lot that they're doing wrong. We've got state government borrowing at a, a post-World War II high. We've got taxes at a post-World War II high. We've got economic uh, stagnancy. There's no growth in GDP, really. Um, GDP per capita is actually s shrinking when you take into account the rate of immigration that we've got. Um, culturally, as Suella Braverman rightly identified, multiculturalism isn't working. The, the United Kingdom culturally is falling apart. Um, so you can, you can cite all of that, but what could be greater than giving up part of your country? Um, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, that's what our passport says. And part of that, part of the country has now been given up. And so I think when you've got political weakness S such fundamental political weakness that they don't even recognize, they refuse to even recognize they've given up part of the country, then, you know, there's got to be a kind of democratic revolution. A recent polls showed that uh, people who voted Tory in 2019 more are moving over to reform than to Labour. That's what we would expect. Um, you know, we ended up in, 20, in 2019, we ended up being really a friend to the Conservative Party. Mm. We did their work for them. Uh, we had a lot of support. When I say we, the Brexit Party, uh, which is the previous incarnation of Reform UK. Reform UK is the Brexit Party, but with a new name. Um, you know, the Brexit Party stood aside in 317 seats. They were all, it was a blanket stand aside in all seats held by Tory MPs, including, you know, MPs like Theresa May, we stood aside, stood aside so she could get re-elected. And, uh, and as a result of that, Boris Johnson got an 80-seat majority, and we thought he would do what he promised, which was to deliver the country out of the EU as one United Kingdom. He didn't take, control, take back control of our laws. He didn't take control of our fishing waters. He didn't. And so the fight continues. You know, the f and the Brexit fight, funnily enough, hasn't, hasn't finished. You know, the Brexit fight that we were fighting in 2019 continues. And it's not because of some obsession that we have with the ideology of Brexit that that fight continues. It's because the fight for Brexit is actually the fight against the existential threats that face the United Kingdom. It's a fight for the British people. It's a fight for the liberation of our economy. It's, for, it's a fight to restore our culture in this country. It, it, it encompasses all of that. So when, you know, when rejoiners say, oh, you know, the nation is sick and tired of Brexit, it's not. It can't be, because the fight for Brexit is the fight for the United Kingdom. You can't tire of the fight for your country. For people who have voted Tory in the past and are considering reform, what are the key differences you'd like them to understand between the two parties? Well, we are um, unashamedly pro-British. All our policies are made for the United Kingdom with the people of this country in mind, whereas the Conservative Party has hitched itself at the hip to the EU. Um, you know, we're still stuck in large swathes of EU law. So um, the trade agreement that Boris Johnson did with the European Union requires us to uh, not regress in matters of state aid, competition, employment, the environment for massive policy areas for a government. And of course, the environment includes this inexorable march towards net zero. So what we, what we wish to do is make laws and regulations for the British people, 
Uh, we want to deregulate because we think there's been far too much regulation over the last 40 years of membership of the EU, which is a highly regulated, you know, what does the EU do? What's the purpose of Brussels? It is merely to produce regulation. And there is no other purpose. It's not for the economic welfare of Germany or for France. That's down to Germany or France or Italy or whatever. All they do is produce regulation. All they're interested in is the march to ever closer union. That is the principal function of Brussels. Whereas what we would do is jettison all those laws and regulations that were made with that pursuit in mind and start being pro-British. I know it sounds kind of a statement of the obvious, but the Conservative Party hasn't done that. So fundamentally, that is a massive difference. We would take Northern Ireland back into the United Kingdom. We would get rid of the uh, IRC border. And by the way, there's no requirement for checks on the island of Ireland either. You know, those nationalists and EU voices that claim there'd be a resurgence in IRA violence if we somehow enforced our own customs union at the border with the Republic, uh, peddling a falsity. You can easily achieve what's required through export controls rather than import controls, which is the way the IRC border works and the way most customs arrangements work. So you can deal with that. We would take back Northern Ireland. We'd get rid of EU laws. We would deregulate more generally for the economy. We would cut taxes on the working and middle classes. Uh, so one of our key signature um, economic policies is to increase the threshold for tax from £12,500 per annum to £20,000 per annum, taking swathes of people who have been caught by Rishi Sunak freezing that threshold for many years, take them out of the tax net so that it pays to work. And when it pays to work, the 6.1 million people who are now on universal credit, which was 3 million, by the way, before lockdowns, wow. the six, yeah, it's doubled. 6.1 million people in this country who are uh, partially or entirely economically inactive, of, of the 6.1, 2.1 million are not even looking for work. Okay, and that is a terrible testimony to the labor market in the United Kingdom. They would go back to work. And if they go back to work, the burden on the state for benefits reduces. If it pays to work, you get the economic machine working. And if they go back to work, lo and behold, you need less immigration too, because you've got the British workforce back, you know, back doing what they should be doing. Um, so it's critical that we reduce taxes on the working and middle classes. Again, something that seems to completely evade Jeremy Hunt. He seems to be obsessed with balancing the books. He's, he's an accountant. He's not a, he's not a driver of economic growth. But any sane-minded individual who looks at where we are recognizes that to get economic growth, you've got to get the nation working again. And the way to get the nation working again is to make it pay to work. And if it pays to work, we will work. And when we work, the economic machine will kickstart. And, and believe it or not, the Treasury, even though it would have reduced taxes, will collect more taxes because there'll be more people working the economy will be growing again, and there'll be wealth generation, as opposed to where the Conservative Party is, which is wealth redistribution. And because they're caught in that wealth redistributive mode, um, in order to drive economic growth, in order to fill the job vacancies that they've created by robbing the British workforce of a just net pay, they have to open up to immigration. And they've done that absolutely uh, un in an unbridled fashion. So last year, we had 1.1 million immigrants come to the United Kingdom. Net, they, people talk about a net figure of 600,000, but it was actually 1.1 million. 
and 500,000 young Brits of working age left the UK. So we're having, we're having a complete change in the cultural setup of the United Kingdom, which brings us back to slightly where you and I were talking before the interview started about Suella Braven, multiculturalism not working, etc. And so, you know, if you join the dots, high taxation leads to failed multiculturalism. And no one in parliament, no one in government seems to get it that this, they've got to take a holistic approach to um, getting the nation moving in the right direction again. And so, just to sum up, having gone round the houses, ditch regu EU regulations, ditch regulations generally, get off this inexorable march towards net zero, um, cut taxes on the working and middle classes, champion British values, we haven't talked about the culture, but be proud of our history, recognize that we abolish slavery, that we shouldn't be ashamed of our history, we should be proud of the human rights that we settled across the globe, the common law system that we exported to across the globe, which, by the way, the globe has benefited from in terms of trade hand over fist. The European model of law hasn't been exported because it doesn't fundamentally work. The civil code approach to everything um, doesn't work. You know, the British system of everything's allowed unless it's explicitly prohibited engenders economic activity. The European model doesn't. So the globe should be very grateful for what we've done in terms of exporting our law. And of course, we, we, the United Kingdom is where the agrarian revolution took place, and it's also where the industrial revolution took place. And we exported all of that. So we've been a tremendous exporter of good in the globe, and we should be proud of it. And so on the cultural perspective, you know, Reform UK would champion the UK. We wouldn't be allowing people to say that we should be ashamed of our past, that we should pay reparations. It's a ridiculous notion that we should pay reparations for something that was done by people against other people, all of whom are dead, um, and at a time when the entire world was trading in slaves. And indeed, a large swathe of those parts of the world that traded in slaves then are still trading in slaves, but they're not called out for it. You know, we seem to be wishing to self-flagellate over the issue. But it's part of dumbing down our culture. It's a part of this kind of inner attack on the United Kingdom. Um, it's a desire to break our self-confidence. It's part of the same thing, you know, which says that the critical race theory, which basically says that if you're white and you don't recognize your privilege, you're inherently racist. Um, you know, these, these are all an attack on our nation state, and Reform UK would get rid of all of that nonsense. So we would be markedly different to the Conservative. We would be genuinely conservative. On that issue, it feels like you know, the, the very values of Britain have been under attack in recent years. I mean, our history is being rewritten. Our, our national heroes are being toppled, yeah. our institutions under attack, even how we educate our children. Yeah. I mean, these are the, the fundamental values of how we live our lives, but we're told it's toxic culture wars if we try and get involved and, su and yeah. support them. Are these culture wars really an attack on, on Britishness itself? They are, absolutely. So th there's an attack going on right across Western democracies. The United Kingdom's not alone in suffering these attacks. They're going, it's happening right across Europe. It's happening in the United States of America, and it's happening on multiple fronts. 
what, what, one of the ways they're doing it is attacking our history, rewriting history, as you said, and, we, and I touched on that, and the way that we are now told that we should be ashamed of the British Empire, we should be ashamed of our history, when actually it was us that abolished slavery. It was us that then policed the high seas to eliminate slavery. It was us that established human rights in the world at a time when actually we were at the zenith of our power, and no one was forcing us to establish those human rights. We did it because it was the right thing to do. We should be proud of all of that. We should be proud of Winston Churchill, contrary to what St. Paul's Cathedral used to have on their website, he cannot be regarded and was not a white supremacist. He lived at a different time. They had a different compass, perhaps. But ultimately, the freedoms that you and I enjoy today are squarely down to Winston Churchill and others like him, uh, and many whom we will be celebrating this weekend come Armistice Day. Um, so we should be proud of our history. Our culture is attacked. Oxfam has written a 90-page book on decolonizing the English language. That is nothing other than an unashamed attack on the language. And they attack the language because if they can control language, they control the messaging. If they control the messaging, they can get their way with the political uh, agenda that they have. Um, diversity, equality, and inclusion is nothing about... It, there's, nothing di there's nothing diverse, equal, or inclusive about diversity, equality, and inclusion. What that is, is reverse racism. It's saying that those who come from an ethnic minority deserve a special crack, deserve promotion. Well, that is ra reverse racism, and reverse racism is racism. And that has embedded itself in the institutions of this country, in businesses. In fact, you're required through regulation to give effect to DEI policies. Uh, and then, of course, the other big one, which we've touched on again, is the environment and this march, inexorable march towards net zero. So uh, educationally, you know, if you're a five or six-year-old now, you're being told that there are 72 genders. You can choose from whichever one you wish to choose from. Um, and that's consistent with diversity, equality, and inclusion training. You're told that if you're white and you uh, don't appreciate the privilege you have, you're racist. And you're also told that your very existence is carbon emitting and therefore threatening to the planet. So if you're a seven-year-old white child of a middle-class, working middle-class family, you're basically told you're racist, you're privileged, your existence the, threatens the planet, you can be whatever gender you want. Can you imagine being this child? You would grow up completely lacking in confidence, discombobulated. You wouldn't have the aspiration that is key to the human spirit and for ambition and for entrepreneurialism and for the, you know, for, for the United Kingdom to flourish. You'd be stripped of aspiration. You'd become dependent. And that's what they want. That's what the left want. They want dependency. They don't want aspiration. They want to replace aspiration with dependency. They want to kill wealth creation. And they want to, and they want to embed wealth redistribution. They want to get rid of private enterprise. That's why taxes are so high on business. Um, you know, and that's, the, that's where the entire Western democratic world is sleepwalking, and we need to stop it. The recent terror attacks in Israel, uh, the protests that followed, uh, I've seen a lot of people surprised that there's so many among us with very different views, and some of those people hold our, our values in contempt, really. Yeah. Do you think the multiculturalism experiment has failed? Completely failed. Completely failed. What is multiculturalism? How can multiculturalism work if the premise of it is that you all continue to practice your cultures in isolation of each other. The whole point of mixing with other people, going abroad, um, meeting other people, 
conversing with other people of diverse views is so that you can hone your own views. You can develop yourself. Fundamentally, if immigration is to work, we have to assimilate immigrants. They have to join our culture, and we have to take from them the best of their culture, and they take from us the best of our culture. So we emerge as a stronger, homogeneous society. That's not multiculturalism the way it's being practiced. What's happening, and we saw this the other day in Leicester, for example, when there was a cricket match between England, uh, between Pakistan and India, um, you saw Pakistani communities, uh, ethnically Pakistani communities, kicking off against ethnically Indian communities. England weren't even playing. And, you know, there was violence. And that's not good for a nation. And if you want an example of, you know, where this ends up, you just need to look across the channel at, at France. And you'll remember that Alger young Algerian man, I think he was 17 or 18, who was shot by the French police. And France erupted in inter-ethnic violence. From Marseille to Calais, it was ablaze. And France has practiced this really badly. And if we need a lesson on what not to do, it's the way the French do it. We urgently need, as a country, to dramatically reduce immigration. And we need a real program of breaking down barriers between cultures, a program of education of what it means to be British, British history, British values. And we need to bring all these people that we have in our country into our, uh, to our bosom, if you like. You know, we need, to, we need to integrate. We don't want to be operating in individual silos. I don't care what color someone is. I don't care where they came from. I don't care what their religion is. But I really care about what their values are. I really care about whether, they, whether or not they hold the country in contempt, whether they're proud to be British or they're anti-British. And I think what we've got in amongst us now of significant minorities who are fundamentally anti-British, who hold a country which has given them succor, which has given them a roof over their head, which has fed them, given them opportunities, holds our, holds our country in contempt. And that has to stop. We're even seeing in parts of Britain where um, that completely different from British values, like different languages are spoken, and you can live there and then pretty much not interact with a British yeah. person at all. And that, that can't be right. It can't be right for harmony. It can't be harmonious. You know, fine, immigration is a good thing, but it's got to be at a pace which the country can absorb and where we all go forward stronger as a result of it. And we have seen this play out, as you rightly identify, on the streets of London, um, through the prism of what's happening in Gaza. A lot of the protests, um, you know, we have to take these protests very seriously, by the way. Um, I don't want to diminish the importance of the protests and some very good people who want to preserve Palestinian life. Of course, who wouldn't want to preserve innocent Palestinian life? I'm wholly in favor of that. But what we're seeing is an the people using this as an opportunity to grind an axe against the United Kingdom. So you've seen people with their faces hidden carrying ISIS flags, calling for an intifada uprising from London to Gaza, calling for a jihad, um, asking, requiring, threateningly requiring the British people whom they're addressing to choose which side they're on. I'm not on anyone's side. I'm on the United Kingdom's side. You know, we have to do what's right for the United Kingdom. And as it happens, the right thing to do is to root out Hamas and eliminate a terrorist organization 
that invaded Israel and didn't have any military targets, didn't, uh, didn't go after any installations or uh, targets that you might associate with a, with a genuine war or an uprising against an oppressor. They went after men, women, and children, civilians. They killed them, killed 1,400 of them. And you cannot, you cannot tolerate that. So when people like Sadiq Khan, Anas Sarwar, and Iqbal Hassan, Hussein, or whatever, um, uh, Andy Burnham, call for a ceasefire, what they're saying is that they want Hamas, the, the rooting out of Hamas, to stop. That is the implication of a ceasefire. Israel has a right to defend itself. Israel has to root out Hamas. They're doing the world a favor if they root out Hamas. There is no way uh, any Palestinian lives will be threatened if Hamas laid down their weapons, recognized the state of Israel, and undertook to peacefully coexist with Israel. That would be the end of the dispute. No one would support Israel persecuting the Palestinians at that point. We would all be up in arms against Israel if they did that. Um, but at the moment, Israel is having to root out a terrorist organization. And it's a tragedy that there are minorities in our own society that would wish to, uh, which, which would wish to use Israel's legitimate uh, aims as an axe to grind for their own cultural contempt of the United Kingdom. That's what's happening. The parallel that's being played out on our streets is being played out against the British people. On the topic of immigration, I mean, Rishi Sunak said he would stop the small boats and never managed to. And we see you know, the same thing happen in other countries such as Italy. Why is it so difficult for governments to deal with this issue? Well, you know, it's a really interesting question you pose. And, you know, anyone who's familiar with our history knows immediately that the channel used to be a moat that defended the United Kingdom. It was a mechanism by which it was a, it was a it was a geographic it was a topographical um, uh, uh, manifestation which protected this country, and um, you know the reason Hitler didn't invade the UK is because we had a channel and we could use that to defend ourselves, but our political class has become so weak that they're not prepared to do any form of genuine border control. Border control is not a legislative exercise. Border control is not an exercise in deportation. Deportation is what you do when border control has failed. Border control fundamentally is a physical exercise. It's the enforcement physically of your border. And you have a right as a country to do it. We're, a, we're, a, we're surrounded by water. So the right that afforded us comes through the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. And under Article 33, we are right to take preventative. We have a right to take preventative measures to prevent, uh, to, 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 to prohibit uh, illegal entry to the United Kingdom. It is our right. And I would say it's our, it's our politicians' obligation to do it. Um, Italy seems to be corrupted by the same political weakness. Greece, I think, is slightly stronger. But the people, if you want a lesson on how border control is exercised, look at Poland. They're exposed to illegal migration across their borders. No illegal migrants go into Poland. They don't go in because they're given no economic truck. You know, the United Kingdom spends 50,000 a year 
on housing, feeding, and medically caring for those who've entered our country illegally. France spends 5,000 a year, which tells you, you know, informs you why they make the channel crossing to yeah, the UK. Yeah. Poland have zero tolerance for it. And that's what we need. We need to develop the backbone required to enforce our borders. The Australians did it with uh, Operation Sovereign Borders back in 2013. They stopped the boats in the sea. They required them to turn around. If necessary, they boarded the boats and then they, they piloted them back to Indonesia. And, we, and Italy, Greece, it, it really it's down to Italy, the Western Balkans and Greece to do it. They need to get in these boats and take them back to Libya or wherever they came from and deposit the people back there. It's more challenging in the channel because it's a narrow body of water and these people are coming on dinghies. So it ain't that easy to stop them. But it is possible. The Belgians have a problem with uh, dinghies being launched off their coasts. They intercept them at sea and they send back 90% of dinghies at sea. So when we're told it's a dangerous affair, it's impossible to stop dinghies in the channel and send them back, I say no, completely wrong. Of course it's possible. If these people had the free will to get in a dinghy and make the journey 12 and a half miles to the edge of our territorial water, they're well capable of turning around and going back to France. And, you know, we mustn't be putting them on border force boats, which is acting like a taxi service and then ferrying them back to our shore. They should be required to turn around and go back. There should be zero tolerance of illegal entry to the United Kingdom. It's illegal. They're safe in France. These are not genuine refugees. They're safe. They're coming from France. And all, this, all these arguments that the kind of, you know, open border brigade have that we need m more safe routes from France. We've got lots of safe routes from France. We've got the Channel Tunnel. We've got ferries. We've got airplanes. All they need to do is get the requisite paperwork in France where they are safe, and then they can make the journey legitimately to the United Kingdom. One institution that's in the spotlight a lot recently is the police. I mean, people yeah. are uh, arrested for fairly innocuous tweets, but calling for jihad on the streets seems to go unchallenged. And then we get, the Home Secretary puts out a, a statement and the police don't seem to follow it and carry on getting involved in political activity. What are your thoughts on, on this and how can we deal with it? Yeah, so, I mean, it's not just the police, it's every institution in this country. When we say, uh, you know, the, the, the left sort of bleeding heart, Islington, liberal elite, would have us believe that every institution in this country is racist against ethnic minorities. It's the inverse. They're racist against white people. And I can say this because I'm half Pakistani, and I, and I, and I can see it for what it is. Um, and it comes back to diversity, equality, and inclusion. Every institution now is practicing DEI. The police is no exception, even the RAF. Were, were on a recruitment drive to try and get more people from ethnic minorities. You know, for goodness sake, in the RAF, all we want is the best pilots. We don't want anything, you know, we don't want DEI going on. We just want the best, whatever color they are, I couldn't care less. You know, they just have to be the best for what they're doing. And that's the approach we should take across the economy, across all our institutional landscape, across all employment. But the ideology of DEI, which is the promotion of minority interests, if necessary, at the detriment, to the detriment of the majority, is what the police are falling prey to. And they've had it so drilled into them that they must protect minorities, that they protected the Black Lives Matter marches, even though they were breaking the law during lockdown marching. They took the knee 
to BLM. Our law enforcement took the knee to a political movement. Now, if you need evidence that the Met is politicized, that's it. They can't argue that they're not politicized because to take the knee, you're taking a political position on BLM. And again, Suella Braverman's absolutely right to call out this two-tier policing, which you've identified. And the root cause of it is this notion that minority interests ostensibly have to be promoted above and beyond and to the detriment, if necessary, of the majority. That's what's wrong. What we've got to get back to is everyone is equal. Doesn't matter what color you are. It's the content of your character. That's all that matters. We've got to get back to that. That's how I was brought up. I'm sure that's how you were brought up. And, but that's not how we're bringing people up now. That's not what our institutions are practicing. So they're scared of challenging the Palestinian marchers because they see them as a minority. They're fearful of the minority. They're fearful of breaking the regulations to which they are the, themselves subject. But they will challenge you if you're white and carrying a St. George's flag because they will see you as somehow racist. For goodness sake, the St. George's flag is our national English flag. That is not an arrestable offense. <laughs> it's, it shows how far we've fallen as a country. Some public commentators have talked about leaving the sinking ship of Britain. And as, as you mentioned, it seems quite a few young people are actually doing that. Yeah. I mean, apart from the things we've discussed, there's also the uh, highest tax rate since records began and young people can't get on the housing ladder, can't afford to live in the southeast in many cases. And what can we do to turn things around and stop this brain drain? Yeah, so again, fundamentally, in order to, for the human spirit to be content, it has to be allowed to aspire. And to aspire, to be able to aspire, you've got to believe that if you work, you will be rewarded for that work. You've got to have that belief. And at the moment, we're not practicing that. So as I mentioned earlier, taxation has to come down. You've got to be allowed to keep what you earn. You know, if you can't keep what you earn, you're going to be despondent. The harder you work, the less you make. It's not a good relationship. Um, so we've got to we've got to allow the youth to uh, make money and keep it, and we've got to allow them to be proud of the country. If you go around ashamed of your country, in perpetual self shame you're not going to be aspirational. You're going to be dumbed down as a human being. You'll be depressed. And you probably suffer mental health issues, actually. It's a fundamental necessity for humanity to be comfortable in its own skin. If it's not allowed to be comfortable, it won't be happy. If it's not happy, it won't aspire. If it's not aspiring, you're not going to progress. And um, so it's a, it's a multiplicity of things, but at its heart, it's an economic and cultural model which taxes everyone to the hilt, which regulates us to the hilt, which informs us that we shouldn't be proud of who we are. Those are the three things. And it's very easily rem remedied. Just cut taxes, get the state out of the way of business, tell people they should be proud to be British, and let them get on and do it. The first thing Margaret Thatcher did when she took office People don't remember this, but the first thing she did, inflation was up, national debt was very high, the economy was out of control. The first thing she did was cut the rate of tax, the basic rate of tax from 33% to 30%, and she cut the high rate of tax from 80% to 60%.
She did increase VAT because she wanted to control spending, but she allowed you to decide what, how you spend your money, and, and she got people back working, and that's what we've got to do now. Jeremy Hunt hasn't got a clue. Liz Truss had the right idea. The conservative beast, the Bank of England, the, those who would adopt a socialist redistributive model for our economy, defenestrated her. And it, it was a tragedy because when they defenestrated her, they trashed this fundamental conservative principle. And, um, you know, that, that, that's what we've got to fight for. And if we can reestablish that, if we can get our politicians to understand that aspiration is critical for the promotion and the well-being of this country, then I think we will do well and we can reverse that brain drain because policies will flow with aspiration in mind. Policies at the moment are not being made with aspiration in mind. They're being made with dependency in mind. We live in a highly regulated society and it seems to be becoming more so. Soon we'll have a, a super Ofcom that's looking at the internet as well. And then we've got the supranational organizations like the WHO are also yeah. looking to get involved. Do you think overregulation is damaging our development? Uh, absolutely. And it's a direct assault on democracy, of course, because the more power you give these independent bodies, which for independent read unaccountable uh, and they do as they wish, the more power you give them, the, more, the less power Parliament has, the less power, therefore, the people have. And the less power we have, the less democratic we are. And this is by no accident. Those that think that they can govern us better than anyone, Tony Blair being the best example, because he set a lot of the... A lot of what we're experiencing now was set and trained by Tony Blair. Um, I'll digress for a second. So he, he introduced something called Section 172 of the Companies Act, 2006. It was the first time companies and businesses were required to pursue a social agenda in amongst their aims uh, as business entities. And I was brought up to believe there are only four things a company needs to, a business needs to, 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 to target. It needs to make sure it can pay its taxes as and when they fall due, make sure it uh, provides for its employees in accordance with their contractual obligations, settle its creditors as and when debts are due, and make money for shareholders. Those are the four principles. But then he introduced this thing called social justice, which is undefined and can be maneuvered in any direction. And it's this social justice element in Section 172 of the Companies Act, which has now found its way into a myriad of other regulations and laws that has undermined the economic model. And um, we, have to, we have to unwind all of that. We need, to, we need less regulation. We need less supranational institutions telling us what to do. We need less domestic independent bodies regulating us. We need power back with our politicians. We need power back with the people. And we need, as I've mentioned so, so often now in this interview, we need aspiration to be reinstilled. If you have no power as a, as a populace, if democracy is failing, you can't have aspiration. Sorry, I banged on about aspiration, but it is a critical component. It's, it's critical for the human spirit. Ben Habib, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you.